Well, uh, if you will, uh, turn with me into your Bible uh, to the uh, third commandment, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7. And then also, if you want to grab your hymnal and turn to the back of the hymnal to the Westminster Confession of Faith, page 933, we're going to talk about oaths and vows tonight. Oaths and vows. And it may surprise you that oaths and vows are in a confession of your faith. Um, how many of us would think if we were writing a confession, we need a whole chapter on oaths and vows? And uh, as Chad Van Dixhorn points out that, you know, one of the reasons uh, that we do is actually because we do not live in a world that tells the truth. And uh, so we actually do need these things. So let's begin uh, with Exodus chapter 20. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word, that your word is truth. And we pray that you would sanctify us by the truth tonight. Bless this lesson, Lord, that we'd get even more out of it than we ever thought when we came here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. And then also chapter 22 of the Westminster Confession of Faith here. Section 1 of lawful oaths and vows. Number one, a lawful oath is a part of religious worship wherein upon just occasion the person swearing solemnly calleth God to witness what he asserteth or promiseth and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he sweareth. Number two, the name of God only is that by which men ought to swear. And therein it is to be used with all holy fear and reverence. Therefore, to swear vainly or rashly by that glorious and dreadful name, or to swear at all by any other thing is sinful and to be abhorred. Yet, as in matters of weight and moment, an oath is warranted by the word of God under the New Testament as well as under the Old. So a lawful oath being imposed by a lawful authority in such matters ought to be taken. Section 3. Whosoever taketh an oath ought duly to consider the weightiness of so solemn an act, and therein to avouch nothing but what he is fully persuaded is the truth. Neither may any man bind himself by oath to anything but what is good and just and what he believeth so to be, and what he is able and resolved to perform. Section 4. An oath is to be taken in the plain and common sense of the words, without equivocation or mental reservation. It cannot oblige to sin, but in anything not sinful being taken, it binds to performance, although to a man's own hurt. Nor is it to be violated, although made to heretics or infidels. Section 5. A vow is of the like nature, with a promissory oath, and ought to be made 
with the like religious care and to be performed with the like faithfulness. Number six, it is not to be made to any creature, but to God alone, and that it may be accepted, it is to be made voluntarily, out of faith and conscience of duty, in a way of thankfulness for mercy received, or for the obtaining of what we want, whereby we more strictly bind ourselves to necessary duties or to other things so far and so long as they may fitly conduce thereunto. And then finally, section 7, No man may vow to do anything forbidden in the word of God, or what would hinder any duty therein commanded, or which is not in his own power, and for the performance whereof he hath no promise of ability from God, in which respects popish monastical vows of perpetual single life, professed poverty, and regular obedience are so far from being degrees of higher perfection that they are superstitious and sinful snares in which no Christian may entangle himself. Amen. Now, just to break down those seven sections that we have read, let me give you just a quick outline of these seven points here. Number one, an oath. First of all, uh, the first four deal with an oath. And the second three deal with the vow. So an oath is a religious uh, act. It is an act of a religious worship to call on the name of God and to witness the veracity of the promise or the veracity of the testimony that's about to be given. So it is, it is, a, it is a, a religious, well, it is an act of religious worship whereby we are calling on God. Now, the... The difference between an oath and a vow is this. The easiest way, I think, is this to remember, boys and girls. An oath is something that we take and we are asking God to be the witness of what we are saying or testifying to. We are invoking the name of God to serve as the final witness as to what we either promise or to what we are about, if it's like in a courtroom, to give testimony to the truthfulness, the veracity of what we're about to say. We're, we're saying, God, come down and you be the witness. A vow is like an oath, but it's different in this way. Whereas the oath is asking God to be the witness of what we're about to say, the vow is where we make the promise directly to God. That is, we are promising God directly for something that is going to bind us uh, for the future. So uh, one is invoking God to witness what we're about to say. The other is a promise to the Lord. So that's the difference between an oath and a vow. Now, an oath should only be taken in the name of God in no other. That's section two. It should not be done rashly. Um, and they are indeed at times lawful. And I'll talk about that because you have some absolutists who look at the Sermon on the Mount and they say you can never take an oath or a vow based on the words of Jesus, and we'll talk about that. Um, but the Westminster Divines say no, oaths may be imposed if by a lawful authority. We need to remember that they are weighty, and uh, we may only promise that which is truthful, 
just and good and, and believes truly what he can perform. Um, it has to be in the plain common sense of the words. That's section four, no equivocation, no cross fingers. Uh, and then the, the next three are the vow, okay? Perform with faithfulness. It's a promissory oath, again, to God alone, just like with the oath, the vow is to God alone. And, um, and then finally, it cannot be for anything forbidden. So let's break these things down. Now, section one, I'm calling oaths and the third commandment. We read from Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Oaths and the third commandment. Oaths are an act of religious worship. They are religious in nature. It is an invocation of the name of God. Now let's use our Bible here a bit. There's sword drills tonight. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 20. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 20. So is... Are we allowed to have oaths and vows? Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20. The Bible says here, You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and cling to Him. Now notice here, it says, And you shall swear by His name. So the Bible makes it clear, it assumes that there will be occasions in your life to take oaths and vows. And that when you do, uh, you will do so only in his name. Now, why? Well, because God, his name is holy, and he is the omnipotent God. And therefore, we must be careful, as the third commandment says, how we use the name of God. Now, what happens, boys and girls, is this. That we live in a, 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 a world that is unfaithful to God in many ways. One of the ways they demonstrate this is that you go about and you can, you know, you go to a restaurant, you go to Walmart, you go uh, to Publix grocery store, you watch maybe something on TV or you hear something on the radio, and many times you will hear God's name used, but it is not used religiously. It's not used with reverence. But, um, and, and, you know, I... Honestly, I think girls are worse at this and sometimes than, than, than boys are because they like that OMG phrase. Um, you don't hear boys saying that too much, but you, you hear girls using it. Even, I've even heard Christian girls you know, using it. And, and we shouldn't do that. that you, when you use the name of God, you're, you're invoking his, his presence. Um, he is tied to his name. You remember when the temple was being built and the tabernacle before that was being constructed. Why is it so important that they worship at the tabernacle and the temple? Why? I mean, why? We know God is omnipresent. You know, what, what was so significant about this place of the tabernacle and the temple? The Lord told us through Moses why it was so significant. It was because the Lord said, that's where my name is. My name is associated with this place and with this building, and therefore it brought an element of holiness to that place. So the name of God is to be revered. Uh, we are to uh, be careful how we speak of God. Look at Leviticus chapter 19 and uh, verse 12. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 12. You shall not swear falsely by my name, 
so as to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. So the Moses here is saying you may not invoke the name of God and then intentionally lie to cover your tracks. You know, how many times do we hear people say, oh, but I swear, oh, I swear, this is true. And usually the more they say it, the more what? You're thinking, yeah, right. <laughs> this is not true, you know. Um, we are not to invoke the name of God as a cover for our deceitfulness. Now, the question arises if it's, as we've seen, that God assumes that we will at times be taking oaths and vows. Why then does Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount say that to take no oath at all? That is to not swear. The reason that Jesus does so is because what Jesus is um, cleaning up here is the abuse of oaths and vows. He, he is not seeking to nullify oaths and vows. In fact, if you notice, when Jesus was on trial, the scriptures tell us, at least in one gospel account, that he remained silent while he was before the Sanhedrin and the high priest. And they even said, will you not answer these charges? And Jesus again kept silent. And so the, what does the high priest do in that trial? He says, I abjure you in the name of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? What he's doing is there, he's putting Jesus under an oath. Tell us if you be the Christ. And it's at that moment that Jesus speaks. Now, why does Jesus do that? Well, because the law even said, if you are placed under an oath, you have to testify. You, you did not have the option of not testifying if you were placed under an oath. This is in the Old Covenant Mosaic Law. Um, so, but what had happened, much like in our own culture, where God's name was irreverently uh, used and abused, it, so in Jesus' day, swearing had become commonly invoked and thus abused. So Jesus was commanding that in ordinary and regular conversation, he was saying, swear no oath at all, but rather let your yes be yes and your no, no. Now, we have some denominations that kind of take the absolutist position, and they will not even take any oath at all, even under a courtroom. And I don't think that's what Jesus here is intending. For example, how do we know that? For example, in Revelation chapter 10, verse 5 and 6, you don't have to turn there, but in Revelation 10, verse 5 and 6, we see an angel lifts up his right hand to heaven and swears an oath. Now, if it's okay to do in the presence of God and in heaven, I would argue it's okay to do on earth if it's done by a, a lawful authority in a right circumstance and with all the right motives. So we see an angel, a servant, sinless servant of God, taking an oath in heaven. Also, look at, I know you're tired of turning to Hebrews probably, but look at Hebrews <laughs> chapter 6. Your pastor did not emphasize this when we were going through Hebrews. Remember, if you say everything about everything, then you've said nothing at all. Richard Pratt used to tell us that all the time in Hebrew uh, class and hermeneutics. and hom or, Yeah, hermeneutics. He said, you can't say everything about everything. And if you try to do so in a sermon, you said nothing at all. Hebrews 6.16. Uh, 
He says, for men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. So notice here that the author of Hebrews is assuming that there will be times when oaths are administered. Now, this is not contradicting what Jesus said. This is informing us what Jesus said. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul calls on God's name as a witness uh, about the veracity about what he was going to say. In Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 25, he made the men take an oath that they would not take foreign wives who were worshiping other gods, nor would they give their daughters to men who were worshiping foreign wives. So Nehemiah bound them with an oath because this was, why? why? Well, because this was um, going to jeopardize the church. The church is trying to get back on its feet after 70 years in captivity. And the last thing that Ezra and Nehemiah want is for that to be undermined uh, by idolatry again. That was the reason they were driven into the exile was because of idolatry. And and so um, they're so concerned about this issue that they make these men take an oath. As I said earlier, Chad Van Dixhorn in his commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith says, we take oaths because we live in a lying and corrupt world. That's the reason we need oaths and vows, is there are times where person A says this and person B says the opposite. And if it's a serious enough matter and it cannot seem to be resolved through ordinary conversation, an oath or a vow, or an oath rather, may be imposed. And that what we're doing is we're saying we're going to make this very serious and we're going to invoke the name of God and let God judge between you two about what you're about to say and the testimony you're about to give. So, for example, um, in the presbytery, when we, uh, from time to time, will have trials, um, disputes that need to be settled. Maybe they've, um, well, they've always started at the sessional level, but uh, one party, no, I shouldn't say that because sometimes they start at a presbytery level if it involves a minister. Um, if it begins with just members, a member or members of a congregation, then it will come to us on appeal. If it involves the minister, because our membership is in the presbytery, it, the, our court of original jurisdiction is the presbytery. So let me make that clear. But the point is this, that in those situations, um, we have what we call our ordinary business, our stated business. But anytime we uh, go into a judicial matter, uh, the moderator will read a special uh, wording from our book of discipline where he reminds us that we are now sitting in a judicial capacity and uh, that we are to judge according to the word of God. And then as we receive the witnesses, they come up forward and the moderator puts them under oath. The testimony that they are about to give and what we're doing is we're asking God to be the witness of what they are saying in this proceeding. Same in the civil courts. The reason they uh, put your left hand on the Bible, raise your right hand, repeat after me, is the civil magistrate is lawfully allowed to put you under oath if he needs to. And so in civil cases, oaths are lawful as well. Now, we have to be with everything 
but especially things that are religiously related, have to be careful. So let's look at Judges chapter 11, because the second portion, the second section of this chapter on oaths and vows says that we may not, however, make a rash oath or vow. Now, what is a rash oath or vow, boys and girls? To do something rashly is to do something impetuously, suddenly, without thinking about it. Um, we all do this time to time with things. Um, and we, but we should not do that when it comes to something as serious as uh, an oath or a vow. Here, let me stop talking and flip in my Bible here. Okay, Judges chapter 11. Judges 11, and look at 20, verse 29. Here we have Jephthah. Now, Jephthah was a good man. He was a, he was a judge. He was used of the Lord. But as the book of Judges often shows us that the judges were very imperfect uh, men, even though the Lord used them. And look at verse 29, chapter 11 of Judges. Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. Then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. Verse 30, now listen to this. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, here's his vow, if you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, that's the enemies of God's people, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now that was a really weird vow. I'm not sure what was going through Jephthah's mind when he made that vow. But you guys probably know the story, and Jephthah is given the victory by God, and he comes home, and who's the first one out the door? His daughter. Now, the commentators split on what actually followed. Uh, you know, was she a literal burnt offering, or was she rather set apart unto God? Um, and, and almost like a perpetual vow of chastity here. Um, notice verse 39, at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did to her according to the vow which he had made. And that's the question, what did he do? Yeah. And she had no relations with a man. Thus it became custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. We'll leave that for another occasion. <laughs> But the, the point is, Jephthah did something really sinful and foolish in invoking the name of God and making this oath here, um, and it, you know, it cost his daughter, at least with regard to ever getting married and having children, etc., cetera, uh, in the future, it, at minimum, may have cost her more. I don't, I don't really know um, on that. In Acts chapter 23, verse 12, we see men who are intending to murder uh, the Apostle Paul. And in verse 12 and following, they bind themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Now that's certainly foolish too. Why? Well, because they're, they're swearing um, to commit murder. 
They're binding themselves. We're not going to eat anything. We're not going to drink anything until we have killed Paul. Now, remember, Jesus said that the times would come when men think they're doing God a favor by killing his disciples. And that's what they were doing here. Now, of course, you know that uh, word gets to Paul's nephew about this, and he tells the centurion commander, and the centurion commander gets a bunch of army men and uh, cavalry and, and sends Paul far away. Now, how many? I don't know how many of those men kept their oath to not eat or drink anything. Uh, <laughs> if they did, they died. My guess is they didn't, and they broke their, their oath. The, the confession says, um, however, oaths may be imposed by lawful authorities. If you look, for example, at Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 59. Matthew 26 and verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. Oh, I've already mentioned this. And look at verse 63. But Jesus kept silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us. I adjure you by the living God, tell you that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And that's the time that Jesus answered. He said, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and the coming on the clouds of heaven. The confession says it has to be done in the plain and common sense of the words. There can be no cross fingers here, no equivocation on the meaning of is. You know, what is, is, is. Depends what is, is. You've heard that before. Um, you know, it, it has to be in the plain sense of the words. Now, let's talk a little bit about vows here, secondly. Vows are what the confession calls a promissory oath. The vow is a promise, as I said earlier, made directly to God. We're not so much asking God to be the witness, but we are going to God himself and making a promise to God. Whereas an oath is a promise made in the presence of God, here we are calling on God to receive our promise. Now, we are uh, to pay our vows and to make vows. Uh, look at Psalms. There's a few Psalms. Psalm 61. Let's do that one first. Psalm 61 and uh, verse 8. Psalm 61 and verse 8. So I will sing praise to your name forever, that I may pay my vows day by day. So what is the psalmist saying here? Well, apparently he seems to have made a vow to God that for the rest of his life, as long as God gave him strength and, and breath, he was going to praise God's name every day. He was going to pray. And so he says, I will sing praise to your name forever so that I may pay my vows day by day. He has, made, he has put himself under some kind of promissory oath whereby he's saying, Lord, I vow that for the rest of my life, is that, is that God, you give me strength and help, I will praise your name. Uh, look at Psalm 66, verse 13. Psalm 66, and verse 13. I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall pay 
you my vows, which my lips uttered, and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. So here the psalmist is saying that there was some kind of providential affliction in his life that really got his attention. It was a desperate enough situation that he uses it to humble himself before God and, and ask God if God would deliver him from this situation, he would make this vow, he would and pay this vow uh, of praising the Lord and worshiping the, the Lord. He says, I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. <coughs> Excuse me, with burnt offerings, I shall pay you my vows. So he made, obviously, at minimum, a promise that if God would deliver him from this situation, he would go to the temple and he would bring burnt offerings here. That he would have special acts of worship if God would help him in this crisis. And that's something that maybe, you know, we should think about. Should we find ourselves in a situation that is so desperate that um, we might maybe consider uh, taking a vow that if the Lord would be pleased to deliver us from that distress, uh, that we would fulfill a vow with maybe a special service of worship to God. Vows, like an oath, are to be made only to God alone. They cannot be made to anybody else, and they have to be voluntary. cannot be coerced. They must be done from faith. Now, the reasons, they give two, and we've mentioned a little bit about this in the Psalms. One reason you might take a vow is for the thankful acknowledgement of mercies. We see that here in the Psalm 66 that we just read. The thankful acknowledgement of mercies. God has done something in our life. He has delivered us from our distress. And we have made a vow when we were in that distress. And now we want to acknowledge that. And so we vow. Uh, could be for something you desire. Remember Jacob said, Lord, you know, if you will bring me back to this place and you will bless me, you know, I will serve you. And that was when, you know, Jacob was leaving his family and going off to Laban, etc. And indeed, you know, God does. He brings him back and blesses him. And Jacob served the Lord. It may be that we take a vow not only to acknowledge mercies, but also for the obtaining of something we desire, or it may simply be to bind ourselves more strictly to our Christian duties. It may be that for a season... Maybe you, maybe you feel like, you know, I've just been watching too much television lately. I, I, I just really have not been using my time very well. And, you know, I said I was going to read my Bible this year in 2024, and I'm not reading my Bible again. I'm just, you know, I had these New Year's resolutions, and I'm just not keeping to these resolutions. There just doesn't seem to be enough uh, weight behind them to keep me motivated. And so you say, I'm going to instead take a vow. There's nothing like the fear of God to, <laughs> to motivate you. you know, nothing like ending up in a, you know, the belly of a big fish uh, to make pay your vows, right? So I don't want to be in a belly of a fish, and I'm going to do this. And that might be good. You, know, it may, you might want to do that. Now, again... Just like anything that is good, you have to be very careful, uh, boys and girls, uh, about 
taking vows uh, because it is a serious business. We do need to fulfill what we've promised to the Lord. This, this is a special promise. and we, we need to be careful. You know, John Calvin warns that we not do these kinds of things with what he calls uh, fits of zeal. Um, maybe you are feeling highly motivated. The Spirit of the Lord has been working in your life and you, you, uh, you want to really dedicate yourself further to God and in a fit of zeal, you know, vow to do something that becomes so strenuous that it actually ends up hurting you in many ways, uh, maybe even keeping you from things that you ought to be doing. And, and I'll talk to that in a minute here. We may not vow in such a way that it keeps us from obeying other commandments of God. Okay? So, for example, you, know, you, you married men may not take a vow uh, you know, to withhold marital relations. You know, I'm going to devote myself to God so much in prayer, I'm not even going to have marital relations. You, know, you, can't, you can't not do that. that. That would be a sin. You know, I remember I took Christian ethics from R.C. Sproul and you know, not only did Mary not remain a virgin uh, after giving birth to Jesus, it would have been sinful for her to do so. Plus, you have the verses that say Jesus had brothers and sisters. So <laughs> there's that too. But um, we, we cannot vow something. And you, and you see, Jesus condemns this in the Pharisees and Sadducees. You remember, they made vows, you know, to, they would give, you know, uh, certain, some of them made vows that they would give a certain amount of money to God. And, and, and uh, they tell their mom and dad, you know, who need some help in their old age, you know, that, oh, well, that which I could have helped you with, you know, I gave to God, you know, and they dishonor the fifth commandment. And so Jesus, you know, condemns them uh, for that. Um, a vow, therefore, can, must be for nothing forbidden, it cannot be for anything sinful, nor can it be for anything that is lawful but would hinder the duty required elsewhere that God commands of us. So that's why you, have to better, you better think about these things uh, before you do them. And of course, they have in view here many of the Catholic vows that are imposed upon monks and priests, vows of perpetual singleness, vows of poverty, Vows of regular obedience, these kinds of vows that uh, some of the orders in the Roman Catholic Church, not, I'm not saying all Roman Catholics have to take these vows, but certain uh, orders and elements of the priesthood uh, do take these vows. And rather than helping, uh, the Westminster Divines condemn them as being superstitious and actually harmful. You know, if they, they wanted to vow celibacy, for most men, it would be better to marry. You know, you can be celibate in marriage, you know. It means that you are being lawful. That's what celibacy means there. If you're, the way you be lawful and single is to abstain. It doesn't mean that in marriage. Um, so, you know, but instead, these priests, they bind themselves um, uh, to... Uh, celibacy as single men, and then you have them committing adultery and, and fornication. And, you know, we have even in church history popes who had all kinds of illegitimate children. Um, and so it doesn't help you. 
uh, but actually makes things worse many times. So you should never take a vow for anything that is forbidden or unwise or that would actually hinder another duty that you have to fulfill there. Well, we're going to stop there. Let's pray together and then we'll close with